The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Yeah, amen. Today we are starting a new series. It's called Joy, A Journey Through Philippians. And uh, I am super excited to explore this book, and I know uh, from talking to you that many of you are as well, so that's always good. Uh, This is a pastoral letter written to the Christians in Philippi that was a bustling city in its time with lots of commerce, and it sat right at the crossroads of Europe and Asia. Uh, The more I study Philippians and the more I understand about its geographical location and uh, what it had going on and even the way Paul describes the church itself, I see a lot of connections between uh, this church and us. I mean, for example, Cincinnati, pretty bustling place of commerce. We kind of sit right on the crossroads of the north and the south. There's a lot of you know, commerce going through here. We got big anchor businesses here in Cincinnati. There's a lot of commerce flowing through here. A lot of influence goes out of Cincinnati uh, to the nation as a whole. So maybe not in fashion, <laughs> but in other things. So uh, and maybe we do. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's happening with fashion, obviously. So, uh, but we, we do, we, we sit in a really strategic place, I believe, here in this city um, as far as getting the gospel to as many people as possible. So, uh, right at the crossroads of Europe and Asia, that's where Philippi sat. Uh, Paul and his cohorts planted this church, uh, and, and Philippi was in Macedonia, and that was the first uh, Christian church planted on the European continent, so that's a pretty big deal. And he did that during his second missionary journey. You can read that toward the back half of Acts, where it talks about that happening. The historical setting and circumstance of this letter's writing can be a powerful and instructive challenge to us as we unpack the rest of its content. So understanding what's happening while he's writing it makes what's in here even more powerful, if that was even possible. Uh, This letter right here, which is widely hailed as some of the richest and most vibrant instruction on the subject of joy, was written in roughly AD 61 while Paul was imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to keep in mind, I'm going to keep saying that because it's real important for us to imagine Paul the apostle in jail, facing a death sentence, and writing what it is we're going to explore as we go through this book. It, it magnifies the power of what it is he's encouraging us to, to see the context and situation he's in when he's saying it. And so I want to make sure we keep that in mind. While waiting in the shadow of a possible death sentence for serving Jesus and teaching others to do the same, Paul is writing about how full of joy he is and encouraging other believers to empty themselves of anxiety to be full of joy instead. He does this, of course, by God's grace and the power of his spirit. So as we study this epistle, let's remember and be properly amazed by the gospel-driven and spirit-empowered perspective that was able to flow from this man in an extremely difficult and dangerous situation. So we're going to read Philippians 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, and then uh, we'll go back through and see what it is God has to say to us, okay? So let's read. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thankful for his word. Let's come back up to verse 1, and uh, we'll work through this together and uh, explore here what God has for us. So first one, uh, this is Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. He's talking to all the saints. So first of all, we want to notice that Paul often referred to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he's reminding himself and others that once we were all slaves to Satan and sin, but we were bought away to our true and better master who paid for us with his precious blood. So every time this letter was read, and oftentimes as Paul is writing, he's con- he constantly refers to himself as a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. And, and in that, it, contained in that is this contrast between where we were slaved before and who we serve now. The saints that he's talking about refers to those who have turned from sin to trust in Jesus. And for the most part, uh, this would have been Gentile or non-Jewish converts in Philippi. There wouldn't have been a lot of Hebrews living here. Uh, and so most of these people would have been Gentile. Uh, so this word, it says uh, to all the saints, and then it says including the overseers and deacons. The overseers here, that's the Greek word episkopos, which is used interchangeably throughout the New Testament with the word for elders and pastors. That's why here uh, we, we use those words interchangeably because the New Testament does it. Uh, and this is one of the many places we see this term referred to in the plural which is one of the reasons we believe the best case scenario for every local church is to have a plurality or multiple pastors or elders. So this, and, and almost any other time you see elders, pastors uh, being referenced in a letter, right? Like Peter does it, uh, we see it in Acts, we see it many times when Paul addresses different churches. He says the, the overseers, and so it, it gives this idea that there was more than one elder, pastor, leader, overseer, Again, all those words used interchangeably uh, in and throughout the New Testament. So that's why we believe a plurality of elders. It's one of the reasons we believe that's the best case scenario for the structure of a church government. So some denominations and church traditions use the word bishop to describe an overseer of several churches in a region. Uh, That is not necessarily wrong. They had to pick some word. They decided to pick a Bible word. So, I mean, that's cool, but it can be a little confusing uh, because this word overseer that gets translated bishop sometimes really is interchangeable better with elder pastor, somebody that's looking over, caring for the souls of a local congregation, okay? So there you go. I nerded out on you for a minute. Thank you for sitting through it. We can go now, all right? Uh, Verse 2. So verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a really common way for Paul to greet the churches he wrote to. Uh, It's pretty common for him, and of course, he always acknowledges that grace and peace come from King Jesus alone, right? So he doesn't just say grace and peace to you. He makes sure to say 
from the Lord Jesus Christ. So nobody gets it twisted and thinks that grace or peace is coming from anywhere, not from him or not because we just want it real bad. But if we don't have the Lord Jesus Christ involved, we're not having grace or peace or any other good thing. Amen? Amen. So he's real clear about that. All right, so we're going to uh, work on verses 3 through 5 together. All right, so it says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. We see something rare and beautiful in these words from Paul to this church that he had planted a decade or so earlier, again on his second missionary uh, journey. The Philippians, we see here, uh, Paul says explicitly, explicitly, the Philippians were a source of joy and a constant encouragement to him. And he and they had this deep covenantal bond that flowed from laboring together for the furthering of the gospel. Hebrews 13, 7 says, to submit to leaders that God establishes and understand that they bear the burden of keeping watch over your souls. So help make that a joy and not a burden. It is clear that the Philippians did this. And it was, it was that type of spirit-empowered gospel partnership that helped Paul not to feel lonely and full of despair while he was imprisoned for the faith. That connection and that beauty and that submission, that mutual submission uh, in the gospel uh, was a great encouragement to him, even as he wore chains. This kind of relationship we see described here as Paul talks about his love and affection for this church, this kind of relationship is sadly rare. Uh, Satan hates when church congregations and their leaders have deep trust and love between them. So he, that being Satan, actively fights against it in several ways. The quickest, and sadly it's quite common, the quickest way to erode love and trust in a church is to get the leaders to lose focus on God's glory and mission and start straying off into non-gospel-centered emphasis and endeavors. It takes the help of God's Holy Spirit for the family of God to operate as one body. We're called throughout the New Testament to do that, but it takes the help of the Holy Spirit. Not only to operate as one body, but to do that with one mission. And my question would be in thinking through that, here's my big statement. It takes the Spirit of God for the people of God to operate together as one body. Where else on the planet can you take a huge group of people and have them not only work for the same goals, but be doing it for the same reasons, right? Because Jesus doesn't just care about what we're doing. He cares about why we're doing it. And a lot of times you can get a bunch of people to head in the same direction, but if you could, if you could give them all truth serum and find out why are you really here, a lot of times you see a wide variance in, in the answers to what's driving them. When the Holy Spirit's involved, we have unity not only of action, but motive. When pastors and other leaders get more focused on increasing attendance instead of increasing affection for Jesus, compromise is inevitable. When pastors and leaders have their identity and self-worth tied to the size of their congregation instead of the sacrifice of their Savior, you lose the love and trust that only the Spirit of God and gospel mission can cultivate. The Philippians gave sacrificially of their time, talent, and resources because they were not giving to propel Pastor Paul's vision. They were co-laboring together to propel God's mission and vision of getting the good news about Jesus to as many people as possible. Paul was a leader who was truly submitted to Jesus 
and he was about the Father's business. And that made it a joy and not a burden for the people to trust and help him. Now, sometimes Satan attacks from the opposite direction. Sometimes you may have a leader that desperately wants to steer the people of God, that, that, the people that God has entrusted to them uh, and into his care towards gospel mission and faithfulness, but some or all of the people want something else. Uh, Moses dealing with the people in the wilderness comes to mind. Uh, you know, Moses is out there and he's like, guys, come on, right? God has delivered us from bondage and, and, and abuse to Pharaoh. And he's promised us that he's going he's gonna to be with us and he's going to help us and provide for us. And he's going to love us. And he's, he's leading us towards the promised land. So, you know, in light of all that, like, let's trust him and worship him. Let's, let's do whatever he asks of us, right? That's Moses. And then the people, right? We want different food than the miraculous food God's already given us every day. Let's go back to Egypt. You know what I mean? Like, mm, mm. Just, you can see Moses, like facepalm. And he does. I mean, he has some, a couple discussions with God. It's like him and God switch off. One day Moses is like, just, would you just wipe these people out? Man, I'm done. <laughs> but, but what happens, man? God, God teaches, you know, he, he deals with them. He keeps teaching them. And, and God cultivates a love in Moses' heart. And then Moses ends up standing between God and the people because one day God was ready to wipe them out. So then Moses, the good shepherd, stood in between. But anyways, uh, that, that does happen. That does happen. We see that in that situation, but it happens often. Many pastors and leaders burn out and quit because the congregation they serve is stubborn or so steeped in tradition that they refuse to humble themselves and join in on real gospel mission. Uh, it is clear that the relationship between Paul and the Philippian Christians was healthy and helpful. Uh, and I just have to say that Honestly, I, I feel the same level of joy-filled gratitude I hear Paul describing about the Philippians when I think about this church right here. Paul makes clear uh, in the next verse that they were not perfect, and we'll get to that in a second, but, and the truth is we are not perfect here, um, but I, I talk to a lot of pastors and leaders in other places, and I'm telling you this is the truth. You guys are a lot more like the Philippians than many modern day churches are. There's a lot of pastor and leader, pastors and leaders I talk to that are ready to give up, they're ready to quit, they can't get anybody to care about gospel mission, can't get anybody to care about the scriptures, what God wants. Uh, they, you know, if they've got 100 people, there's 100 agendas, and they're, they're struggling, and they're having a hard time, and uh, that's, it's not like that here. I don't feel that way at all, and I'm super grateful that I can join Paul in his gratitude for the Philippian church when I think about this church. Um, I was talking to a brother here this week, and, uh, and he told me this, and this is verbatim. I didn't add any words to this. I promise you, this is exactly what he said. He said, I've never been to a church like Love City. I've searched everywhere, and I've been to so many places, but this church is like a hidden jewel in our city, and I'm so thankful for it. And uh, I agree with him. And uh, I even know all the background stuff. Like, I know all the behind-the-curtain stuff. You know what I'm talking about? And I still agree with him. He's right. Something beautiful Jesus has given us here. And I'm, I'm really thankful for it. We just hit five years. You guys know that? It's a pretty big deal. Let's praise God about that. Amen. And uh, the fingerprints of the Lord Jesus are all over this man. Um, and I'm, I'm a thankful man. I'm grateful. And so I joined Paul, and I just want to tell you, 
Love City, that uh, I thank my God every time I think of you. And uh, I am always able to pray with joy when I pray for you. I'm getting old and emotional, man. <laughs> the heck? Because the truth is, even if we are uh, jumping a hurdle or we're bursting through some obstacle, uh, we have a love and a bond here by God's grace alone that gives us the strength to persevere. It's really important you hear every word I said, because I made sure to say it's by God's grace alone. Let us not think that we are somehow better than any other place in and of ourselves. It is, it is the grace of God. The, everything I'm saying should lead us to worship Jesus, not pat ourselves on the back. But he's been good to us. Really good. So I'm thankful. Uh, this church is, is totally about loving God, loving people, and making disciples. And uh, you guys actively fight against any distraction from the enemy that would slow that mission down. And so, uh, thank you, and I love you. And I'm glad that uh, God has allowed me to serve here and to serve you and to be with this group of people. It's encouraging. Okay, now we're to verse 6. There's some stuff in here I've got to yell at you about, okay? So let's get to that part. All right, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's real good news for us. It's a good promise. Here we see a precious and a beautiful promise that is echoed throughout the scriptures, uh, and specifically by King Jesus himself. He says in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so this, these two together, along with many other verses, they refer to the process of sanctification, uh, and so what we see from that is that we don't make some commitment one time in our lives, and that is the fullness of what it means to be redeemed through Christ. Uh, we see that if we truly taste the delicious bounties of grace, we will not return back to our vomit like the dogs described in Proverbs. However, there, there is a recognition or a, a recognizing here that uh, until the the day of Jesus Christ is the language used. And, and that day, what he's talking about there, that is, that is the final, uh, that is the time when, when Jesus is going to return to place his foot upon the neck of every enemy who stands against him and uh, to receive those who have by grace become the sons and daughters of God. So Jesus is coming back, right? I've, I've told you guys, I'm, I'm not a big uh, you know, eschatological uh, theology junkie, you know, I, I've got opinions about it, but that's kind of a problem. There's, there's a lot of different opinions about it by a lot of people smarter than me, but there's, there's one part of eschatology. That's the study of end things. There's one thing I'm certain about. I know about it. I'll argue anybody about it. Here's what it is. You ready for it? One solid point. Take this to the bank. Jesus is coming back. Come on now. And honestly, that's about what I need to know about it. He's coming back. And, I think, and, and, and tomorrow is going to be closer than I was today. And so I better think that way. I better keep an eternal perspective. I better understand, man. Time is short. What do you mean? They've been saying that forever. Yeah, but time is shorter tomorrow than it is today. I got less time starting tomorrow than I do today to tell people about Jesus, to love people well, to make disciples, to do what it is God put me on this planet to do. And so let's make sure we keep that in, in, in focus. So, so he says, until that day, we will be in a process of growth and change to reflect more and more the good character of our Savior King, right? So that tells us there's a process, 
this precious promise here is that though we must stand firm to the end to be saved, who said that? You remember? If you stand firm to the end, you will be saved. I told you just a second ago. Who was that? That was Jesus who said that, okay? Some people don't like that language, but it's in there. We must stand firm to the end to be saved, it is, but it is he who first delivered us from sin and death through his amazing grace that will sustain us by the same, right? So if you understand that Jesus said, we got to stand firm to the end to be saved, but then we see here in verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So yes, there is this, there is a, we are saddled with this need to endure until that great and glorious day when Jesus Christ returns. But here's why that's not scary, and here's why Jesus can say things like, look, man, my load is light. My burden is light. Come follow me. It's, it's easier than what you're already doing. Here's why. Because that endurance, everything that's going to take to stand firm until the end, to continue in that process of sanctification, the power for that, the, everything we need to accomplish that, where's that coming from? Coming from the very God that laid it upon us. And so the very, the very grace that took us from darkness to light, the very grace that took us from death to life, not only justifies us and begins that process of sanctification, but it's going to hold on to us, and it's going to be the source of power to the very end. God is going to be the one that helps us. So we got to make sure we remember that. And when there is struggle, when there's spots and parts in that process of sanctification where you know perhaps... Uh, you've stumbled. Perhaps you've come up short. Maybe you're not representing well a reflection of the goodness and holiness and beauty of God. Then wh- where do you run to? Do you run to self-discipline? Do you, do you go to some other source of power? Or do you find yourself on your knees again uh, asking the, the God that not only made you but saved you to empower you to keep walking out your salvation with fear and trembling? We're going to need his help. We're going to have to rely on his spirit. Without his help, it's already a done deal. We're not going to make it. He who delivered us from sin and death through his amazing grace, he's going to sustain us by that very same grace. Amen? You happy about that? Yes. Are you glad it's not on you? Yes. I'm not saying you have no responsibility in the thing, but I'm saying ultimately, if it's going to happen, it's on God. You've got to put your reliance and your faith and your trust in him. Anybody put faith, reliance, trust in themselves and it not go that good? Anybody ever done that before? Or you've read about it one time, probably somebody else's life. You've probably never done that. (laughs) All right. Verses 7 and 8. Let's see what we got here. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Since for God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul describes here again another reason uh, why his affection for these people is so great. Uh, They did not abandon him when the going got tough. They joined him in suffering. By sacrificing and collecting offerings to send to Paul while he was in prison uh, so that he would have his needs met. They also prayed for him uh, and they also, you know, they they, they jumped in. They didn't, didn't, when he showed up on that missionary journey, you don't get the sense that the Philippians sat down and, and you know, did this spectator thing and let Paul do all the work. They clung to the truth of the gospel. They received the beautiful good news about Jesus, and they jumped in and said, hey, man, what do we got to do? What do we got to do to be a part of this? And that was a great encouragement to Paul. You may be wondering if Paul was in prison, why it would make sense to send offerings to him. Uh, the reality is, as best we can tell, and of course you get into details of antiquity, it can get fuzzy, but as far as we can tell, 
Paul's arrest situation in Rome was probably more like house arrest than it was him sitting in some dungeon jail cell. Um, and so he was there, he was awaiting sentencing uh, for his supposed crimes, which had to do with telling the truth about Jesus. Uh, but he, it was probably a house arrest deal. Uh, and, and the way that worked is if others did not provide for Paul's basic needs, he would have went without. It wasn't like he was sitting in a jail cell getting three squares a day and that type of deal. Uh, he still had to figure out how to live. And so it was by the generosity of these churches, uh, Timothy, Epaphras, and a few other uh, close confidants, uh, they, they were running around trying to figure out how to keep Paul from dying of starvation while he was waiting for his death sentence. But also uh, they were communicating with the churches. They were running these letters back and forth. Uh, and, and going out with instruction from Paul uh, to be a blessing and encouragement to them. Paul didn't shut down, man. He didn't stop. Uh, he didn't sit there and feel sorry for himself. He kept busy about what the Father uh, had called him to. And so I greatly admire that. Uh, and I'm thankful because out of that we have the letter to the Philippians. Uh, we also see in verses 7 and 8 the result of a heart changed by the power of God. How do we see that? Well, we see that in Paul's desires, uh, they did not turn inward and toxic when his suffering increased, but instead his desire turned outward towards other believers. Do you see that? He's sitting here on house arrest, waiting probably for a death sentence, right? And so what is, what is he saying? Where's his heart at? Where's his mind at? Is he sitting in the corner crying? Is he, is he telling all visitors don't come in? No, man. He's talking about how he, he literally yearns for fellowship with other believers in the midst of this difficulty and suffering. And I would say that that is a clear indicator of, of a heart change because I think standard human emotional response to pain, suffering, and difficulty is not to run out or to reach out or to look outward or to focus on uh, the beauty of what God has already done or the beauty of what we have in relationships with other people. It's oftentimes to turn inward, to seclude, to isolate get alone, and in so doing, step right into the center of the trap of the enemy. This is part of how Paul had so much joy in a jail cell. He did not isolate and believe the lie that he was the only one suffering or that no one else would care. He didn't sulk and allow his thoughts to swirl unchecked into a spiral of darkness and doubt. He reached out to other believers, and though he was facing death for nothing more than preaching the truth of the gospel, he was able to stay encouraged, just reminding himself of those he had served with side by side for God's glory. Remember, this is the beginning of a letter, and this guy's sitting in jail, waiting for probably a sentence of death, and this is what he's writing about. I'm so full of joy when I think about you guys. Yeah, they're, prob they're probably going to kill me, man, but I'm telling you, every time I pray, joy hits my heart when I remember you guys and I think about what we've done together with, for Jesus and the fact that even now, in the midst of my struggling, you're not abandoning me like so many others, but you're sending Epaphras and other messengers to encourage me. You're sending stuff so that I can eat. I'm so thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for all God has done. That's where his heart's at. I yearn for you guys with, the, with the, the love and affection of Jesus Christ, how I wish I could be with you in the midst of this trouble. It's a changed heart. Unfortunately, instead of this type of reaction, many of you fall prey to a temptation to turn inward 
And in so doing, you multiply your struggle to an incalculable degree by denying the power of gospel-centered relationships and community. We need to believe the truth that if our hearts are full of God's Spirit, we will yearn for fellow believers in times of trouble. This will help us to reject the lie that suffering alone is somehow the way to be tough or is in any way preferable to sharing our struggles so that others can help us bear the load. And we have to remember that when we do that, what we also do is free up strength to help carry others. Have you thought about that? Many times, emotional struggle, difficulty, suffering, when it's, when it's our own, because we know all of the details, we know all of the backstory, we know all of the pieces, uh, and we've struggled for a long time with the insecurities that it creates and all of the difficulty, and, and we've done the mental warfare about it for a long time, many times our own struggles. Even if somebody else was going had the same thing going on next to us, our own feels heavier than theirs. And so the beauty of, of yearning for and, and taking advantage of, I hate to say it that way, but, but utilizing what God has given us in gospel-centered community and the fact that we can, we can uh, carry each other's loads and, and love each other in the midst of struggle, when, when, we are, when we're able to take and hand some of that burden to someone else that's willing to help us carry it, if, if what we hand them, it frees up space for us then to help somebody else carry theirs. And, and, and when, we, when we're picking up theirs, man, typically the one we give away is heavier than the one we pick up because it's more blessed to give than receive. And so we, we give some of ours away, uh, you know, and in so doing we're receiving help. But then when we, when we take somebody else and we're willing to pray for them and struggle with them and love them and, and speak encouragement to them in the midst of their struggle, what we're doing there is we're giving to them. Uh, we're giving them hope and encouragement and letting them know uh, that the lie that Satan tells them that they're alone, nobody cares, nobody's willing to help, uh, I'm just going to be a burden, all that kind of foolish stuff, you know, that we all tend to believe, that uh, somehow I'm going to show myself as weak if I let anybody know uh, that I'm not handling all my business, right, on my own. C- can, we, can we just say right now, like, can we just go ahead and tell the truth? None of us is handling all our business at any given time, Right? If we're really being honest, like we all, to some degree, need help. Whether it's we're struggling with, with sins that we're having a hard time overcoming, or we're struggling with other different various attacks, temptations from the devil, or it's just straight, plain old suffering, man. There's affliction and, and difficulty and hard times in our lives. We, we have to realize um, it, 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 is, it doesn't show us to be tougher or wiser uh, if, if we are never willing to open up and let somebody else come in and help us carry that load. It shows, it shows that we're foolish, and, and to some degree, we've been darkened in our heart. Sometimes it's a trust issue, right? Because sometimes we do open up, sometimes we do tell the truth, sometimes we do, in hope, reach out to somebody else, and it feels like our hand gets smacked away, or it feels like they don't do a great job uh, coming in and loving us well and, and helping us carry that load. Yes, absolutely. That's why in verse 6 he said, this thing God started in you, He's going to keep going on it. And so the fact that you're in process, the fact that you're in the midst of sanctification, the fact that God isn't done with you yet, you happy you can say that today? He's not done with me yet, right? He's still working on me. That's true for that other person too. And so if that other person failed you, if somebody didn't do a good job loving you like the Philippians love Paul, if somebody doesn't do a great job being next to you in the midst of that suffering, I'm sorry, that's terrible. If it was me, I'm doubly sorry, and I really do love you. Give me another shot. Or grab somebody else and give them a shot. But don't give up, man. Because that whole isolation, I'll do it on my own thing, ain't going to work. That road has brokenness 
and destruction at the end of it. Every time. Okay? Amen. Verse 9 and 10. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. You notice Paul sitting in the jail cell, this day of Christ is on his mind, isn't it? And what does that represent to some degree? Remember, it's like it's the wrapping up. You know, no, nobody knew the time, right? Jesus said before, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. You will not know when I'm coming. And so I, I, I think Paul thought it was just as likely as we do today in 2017 that tomorrow could be the day that the trumpet blows, man, and, and the Lord Jesus comes to get us. But uh, we, we see that his mind is set to some degree on eternity, man. He's, he's, he's keeping focus on the fact that, yeah, things are not good right now, but Jesus is coming back. And everything that's gone wrong because of sin is going to get fixed. Uh, probably just something else we could think about in the midst of trial and adversity. Another thing we can learn here. Uh, so, verses 9 and 10. Paul just got done describing a church that it sounds like they are a model of Christian love, right? Like they're, they're doing pretty good. But what is his prayer? He prays that their love would grow more and more. Uh, in my estimation, for whatever that counts, I think we do pretty good here at loving each other and loving our community, but we are never, never going to settle where we are in that, in that area. Uh, in our first meeting of 2017, I have asked the leaders here to be praying to God for more creative ideas and spirit-led ways that we can share the love of Christ in our city. God has placed a smack dab in the middle of a metropolitan area of two million people. And we are not going to slow down or back off of loving them and sharing the truth of the gospel with as many as possible until that great and glorious day when Jesus declares our mission over and brings us to our eternal home. We're going to keep going. The Philippians are doing pretty good. I feel like in many ways we're doing pretty good, but we're not going to sit back. We're going to go harder, farther, and faster for Jesus than we have been. We're going to keep finding new and innovative ways to get the gospel to as many people as possible. We're going to keep believing God for whatever resources it takes to do that because he's faithful. He's been exceedingly faithful just far, thus far, and so I've got no reason to doubt him moving forward. Uh, one way to... Sorry, I have also asked our leaders to be praying and thinking about how we can serve, challenge, love, and disciple those who are a part of this church family better. Uh, we already have some things in the works along those lines, but we are continually asking God to show us more and more how we can love people better and better. And it's in this spirit that Paul has. We don't have this weird complex of trying to outdo ourselves or whatever. We just know that the call of God upon any Christian individually is to continue in this race, continue moving forward, continue becoming more and more like Christ. And so not only are we called to do that on an individual level, but we're called to do that as a group of people bound together by the blood of Christ and on mission for his glory. So we're going to do that. Uh, one way to do this is to make sure that our love grows in knowledge and discernment. That's kind of weird here, isn't it? What does he say? He says, uh, verse 9, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. We don't typically stick love, knowledge, and discernment all in the same sentence. Paul was obviously comfortable with it. So what's going on here? 
What's he talking about? I believe this is a key way that we can, uh, in a more faithful way, especially love those within the household of faith, to love uh, better and better and to grow in knowledge and discernment as a part of how we love people. We can't be like the Corinthian church who thought that love meant celebrating sin under the guise of inclusiveness and tolerance. You guys remember that? Uh, around chapter 5, they started, you know, Paul's talking about, so I, I hear that this I hear that this one guy's sleeping with his stepmom or something, some crazy thing like that. It's not totally clear, but this is going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul said, and I hear you guys are over there going, look at us, we're the loving church, we're so loving, we're, we're just affirming this guy, this is great, we're just, it's all good. Jesus, right? Grace. Go read 1 Corinthians 5, man, and see what Paul has to say about that. You can, I mean, you could just imagine almost just nails flying out of this, mouth, this brother's mouth when he's talking about it. He's on fire about the fact that somebody has believed the lie, that love means just let this brother rush headlong into destruction in this sexual sin and think it's okay. He said, no, do not do that anymore. That is not loving. You are not loving that brother. And what you need to do is tell him right now he's in sin. If he refuses to repent, tell him he can't come anymore. Well, Pastor Vince, this is 2017. We can't do that. You better believe we can do that. I've done that. And the person I did it to, I, if you really don't believe me, I'll give you their number. And you can ask them what they think about it. Ask them if they think I was loving them and doing that. Not everybody does get it, but this person does. They know exactly what I was doing. I was loving them with knowledge and discernment. Not this gushy, mushy kind of love that doesn't really mean anything that's floating around here. It ain't love, man. It's feelings, right? That's not love. That's not what God calls love. Love has with it knowledge and discernment. If we're going to grow in love, we're going to grow in these other things as well. And we're going to have the backbone to love each other well. And if we see one another rushing headlong towards destruction, we're going to say, hey, hold on, stop a second. Let me talk to you. I know some of you don't like it. You guys remember, I can see your faces. I know some churches darken that so that I, they, the preacher don't have to deal with it. We don't do that here. I want to see your nasty reaction to these ancient words that still hold true today. And we haven't outgrown this as a human race. We haven't evolved past the wisdom of the word of God. If you believe any of that mess, you're a fool. These words absolutely apply today. And if you are not willing to challenge someone in their sin to stop them from rushing towards destruction, you do not really love them. That's cowardly, and it's not loving. Yep. Get the head weave going. None of you head weaved at me, I can, I can tell you that. That's good. That's why we're moving on. If I'd have got a head weave, y'all, we'd be here a while. So control that neck. Make sure them, head, them neck muscles are strong, man. Don't let them, don't do that. I'm just kidding. You can bob your head if you want to. It don't matter. God's word's still true. Amen. As our love grows with knowledge and discernment, it will cause us to approve what is excellent. Okay, you see that language? So what, what does he say? I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, right? So there's other verses in the New Testament that say part of what happens when people just forget about God, don't care about God, decide they're going to do their own thing, they start to approve things God calls wicked. God says that's bad, and then humans start to say, that's good. Any of that going on in, in the world at large today? Yeah. Yep. There is a lot of it. 
And sometimes it happens in God's church as well. Well, maybe they're not God's churches. I don't know. But it happens in a lot of places that call themselves churches. And so we can't ever let even a hint of that be trying to sneak up in here. If God says it's good, we're going to call it good. If God says it's bad, you better believe we're going to say it's bad. And that is loving. Super loving. Right? I don't care if culture decides fire is cold. It's loving for me to tell you fire is hot. Don't touch it. It'll burn you. You see what I'm talking about? That's, that's the, I don't, I don't, I don't, how did we, how did we stray away from that, like, basic logic and wisdom? I, 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 I almost don't need the Bible to know that part right there. But, like, I have the Bible backing me up, so for sure it's right. But, like, I almost don't even need God. It seems like common sense to me to say, loving you is to tell you the truth, man. Especially if you've believed a lie. And it's obvious. I don't know. So as our love grows with knowledge and discernment, it's going to cause us to approve what is excellent because we love one another enough to push each other to be sincere and blameless. That's the language he says here, that we would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Does that mean we're going to be without sin? Of course not. But he's talking about the sincerity and blameless, you put it together. It's that we are on, we are on this thing, man. We care. We are, we are working out our salvation. We are walking it out with fear and trembling. We genuinely really sincerely care in our heart what God thinks about stuff. And, and, and do, we, do we get distracted at times? Do we trip and fall? Is the Bible clear that, that we're, we're not going to get this perfect before this beautiful uh, you know, fulfillment coming in the day of Christ? Yes, there's going to be times where we come up short. But, but, are, we, but are we sincere? And are we, the, the beauty of what we know with how God has dealt with us, the way we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, is that uh, we, we do have this ability to stand blameless before God because we have, here's a Bible word, this imputed righteousness, right? That's a theology term. That means something was given to us that we couldn't have got ourselves. Jesus lived perfect, then died for us, and gave us his perfection if we would trust him by faith. And so we can, in, in that sense, because we are in Christ, be called blameless. Uh, and I'm thankful that uh, from God's eternal perspective, he can see me that way. I know I don't deserve it. I know absolutely that uh, calling me blameless is almost funny. But I'm thankful that's the way God sees me because of Jesus. He's looking over a lot with me, guys. A whole lot. He's been good to me. So we need to be willing to push each other to be sincere and blameless. Um, so just follow me on this track. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still pushing this point because I know, I know that there is a, a strong counter message to what I'm telling you right now being screamed at you every single day. When you walk out of here, the, the majority of what you're going to hear is going to be the exact opposite of what the Word of God says is true here. And so I want to take a minute on this. Okay, so track with me. 1 John tells us, right? 1 John 4 tells us twice that God is love. Everyone on that one? See, everybody likes that verse. God is love. That's why I can do whatever I want. Right? No. Okay? He tells us twice God is love. So that is true. God is love. That's indisputable. Okay? Now, Colossians 1.13 says this. For he, that's Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, talking about Jesus here, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That is Colossians 1. 13 through 20. And this is the honest truth. I came here for verse 15, but I can't read verse 15 without reading 13 through 20. I just can't do it. I can't get in here and not touch the rest of it because, woo, those are good verses. So that was a little bit of indulgence on my part. Please forgive me, okay? But verse 15 is what we came here for. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Okay, I'm building something here. 1 John tells us twice that God is love. Colossians uh, 115 says he is the image of the invisible God, so God is love. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says this, and he, that being Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power, okay? And Jesus Christ himself said this in John 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the Father, okay? What do we, so what do we got? 1 John 4 told us that God is love, okay? But we need help to know what that means, don't we? Like, really, that's deep. That's really, really big and deep. God is love. What, like, what, what does that mean? It's not just that God is loving, but we see here twice, so it's not, it wasn't a typo, that God is love. Some, somehow, it, infused in his very character and nature is love, that he is its source and its author and thus its definer. So we need help figuring out what he means when he says God is love. Well, where do we get that help? How do we figure it out? Well, Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of his glory and his exact representation. And Jesus said, he's who's seen me has seen the Father. So I want to, God is love. What does that mean? How do I fill that out? What does that look like? How do I define that? Well, who should I look at? Where should I look? Well, maybe... Maybe to Jesus, who is the exact representation of the Father, or the, the one that you know, was so bold as to say, who has seen me, has seen the Father. You see what I'm talking about? He's the radiance of his glory and the exact, represent the exact representation of his nature. Okay, God is love. Okay, God, what does that mean? Let me, how am I going to figure that out? Well, I could, I could look at the, the part of your Godhead that came to earth, and, and your word says is your exact representation. So how did he conduct himself? What was he about? What, how, how did he come so what does it look like for God to be love? Well, John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. God Almighty sent his Son, the radiant and exact representation of his very nature and glory. He sent him to the earth in grace and in truth. And here's what we need to understand, my dear friends. Grace without truth is not grace. And truth without grace is not truth. God is love. 
Jesus is the exact representation of what that means. Furthermore, it says in 1 John 3.16, you want to really understand what love is? You want to have a chance to get it, to really begin to plumb the depths of what it means for God to be love and what it means for you to be commanded to both love God and love people? You want to understand finite-minded human what that means? Take yourself a look at the cross of Christ. Christ is the very representation. He's the only chance we have to understand what God is thinking about anything. And what it means to be completely and totally loving. Well, part of what that looks like is to come and to be in grace and in truth. And a lot of times we're good at the grace part, or we think we are. But a lot of times our grace is missing truth. And there are, there are people on the other end of the spectrum, right? If you have truth but no grace, you don't really have truth because grace is the truth. There is grace available for you. So if someone's, if someone's beating you to death with condemnation and, and under, flying under the flag of I'm telling you the truth, they're missing something and they're not loving you. That's not the whole picture. So people can't just run around beating each other up talking about, well, this is the truth. Yeah, it's the truth, but is there grace? Because Jesus came with both. And who, there's someone we're supposed to be following and trying to be like Oh, that's right, it's Jesus, the guy that came in grace and truth, right? Right. If we're going to love one another, we're going to have to encourage each other towards truth and holiness. That's both for our good and God's glory. The most loving thing we can do is to make sure we tell the truth, but also make sure it is, it is seasoned with and it is motivated by the grace of God. If you're, going, if you're running up and telling people a bunch of truth, but you don't really love them, your motivation is just that you, you think you're right and you like to say it a lot, it will have no effectiveness and it will actually have a, a damning effect upon your soul. You will be in sin. I can sin by telling the truth? Yep. If your motive's wrong, yes, you can. But you can also be in sin by keeping your mouth shut and not loving somebody enough to tell them. You're headed towards trouble, man. And as Christians, oftentimes we fail at that. Sadly, there are, there are ministries that fail at that. There are churches at large that won't say the word sin because people don't like it. Whoo, buddy. I'm, I'm just glad. There's a lot of other things I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sweating about when I stand in front of fire eyes, feet like brass, revelation Jesus. Thankful for the grace of God, I know it's going to be okay, but I'm glad I'm not going to be talking to him about, I didn't want to say sin. <laughs> not me. Sin. Sin. You're a sinner. You have sinned, and you're the reason Jesus went to the cross. He had to die because you've sinned. Was I clear about that? just want to make sure you heard it. Angels, write that one down. Not Pastor Vince. Nope. He said it a lot of times. Amen. We got one more verse here. Having been filled, this is verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Uh, and, and that's, that, so he, he's praying that we will we'll be fervent in love one for another, that we'll, our love will grow continually. We'll never cool off. We'll never think we've arrived. We keep growing in love. And as we do, it's love that has knowledge and discernment. It's not this soupy, emotional junk that isn't really love. Uh, we, we don't do that. But we have love that also grows with knowledge and discernment. He's saying so you may approve things that are excellent. You don't end up approving things that are going to end up people having busted up, jacked up lives and in a bunch of pain. That's in order so that we can be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled 
with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. And so all of that is going to come out of, it's going to be a product of having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, that to the glory of God, uh, to the glory and the praise of God. And so for us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, he says again, Paul's very careful. He's, he's, it's, it's, it's so clear uh, from this and most of his writings that, that Paul was a giant of intellect, but we see here a little bit of, of the other side. He, he was also a giant of heart, and, and um, you see how much he loved these people, how much affection he had for them, how thankful he was for them, uh, but he's, also, he's, he's so clear. Even in the midst of him kind of having this, this emotional outpouring, he's in the midst of his trouble, he's describing to this church how much they mean to him, he's still theologically accurate. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. He's going to make sure you heard that. He's going to make sure you got that. Those, that fruit of righteousness is coming through Christ. And that's, that's, that's our big thing, man. That's our big message. That's what we have to preach. Honestly, it doesn't matter where we open up in these scriptures. We're going to be talking about the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You see, the problem is most people believe some variant of this junk ideology that it comes down to how good or bad you are. If you can be good enough, uh, do enough good things, and maybe God will love you, or you stop doing enough bad things, maybe God will love you. They don't understand this thing is about good and bad. It's about righteousness and holiness and perfection because God is righteous and holy and perfect, and we are not. Nobody, not one person, is holy, perfect, and righteous like God. And because of that, that means there, there, there is a necessary separation because darkness and light cannot mix. Without the righteousness of Christ and the fact that we are made righteous through Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, you put us in the presence of God, man, we'd vaporize. It'd be over. However, even though every single one of us is a sinner, ever since Adam and Eve, we are sinners by nature and choice. Every single one of us has missed the mark of perfection. That's not that hard for us to understand, but for some reason, it's, it's not said. For some reason, we still get confused and we think that... that that somehow it's, it's good works. Somehow it's, well, if, if I can, I know there's these, there's these couple things. If, if I get these things right, then maybe, maybe God will accept me. No. The Bible has no idea what you're talking about when you talk like that. And the Bible is the only way we know what God thinks about anything. The fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Not one of us ever will be able to work our way to eternity with God. None of us will ever be able to fix the problem that sin caused. We don't have the tools in our toolbox to build a bridge back to God. However, I'm so thankful the Bible teaches Jesus laid across that great chasm so we can walk across his back to get back to the God that made us. He came and lived the perfect life you and I failed to do. And then he took the punishment that every single one of us deserved. They beat him, and they whipped him, and they tortured him, and then they put on his back a wooden crossbar, made him walk up a hill, then they nailed him to it, and they scorned him, and they jeered at him while they watched him bleed out. The Son of God died on a hill called Golgotha. He paid the ultimate price for sin, but the beauty is the story doesn't end there. Yes, he died, but three days later, just like he said, he rose. That stone that covered the tomb, it rolled away, and it moved and the Lord of glory, the very radiant representation of the character and nature of God, he burst forth from that tomb and declared once and for all, sin loses and God wins. And now, by faith in his work, you, dear one, can be called a son or daughter of God. There is one question. There is one question that determines where you stand on that spectrum. 
Do you believe what I just told you? Will you trust and believe in the truth of the gospel? Will you stop relying on you? Will you stop thinking that you have any chance whatsoever to do this on your own? Will you put all of your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ, your King? Will you serve him? Will you declare him Lord? He already is. The question is, will you acknowledge it? I hope that you will. Praise God. May we be a people who are bound together by the power of Christ's blood and the importance of his mission. May we be a people who are ever growing in love by God's definition. And may we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Our hearts are swollen with gratitude as we uh, read these, this, this first part of this beautiful letter from uh, the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Thank you, God, that you, uh, by your sovereign hand, have preserved these words for us, that not only in the beginning did you inspire them to be written, but also uh, that you preserved them so that we would have them today, so that we could learn and understand uh, by the power of your Spirit how you think about things, God. We, we, don't, we don't care so much how we think about it. We need your help to see things the way you do. We know that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, your ways much higher than ours, and so, God, our great hope is as we journey through Philippians together, as we explore this beautiful book, that more and more of our thoughts, things where we have perspective misalignments, things that maybe we've come to believe that, that you don't believe. If there's something you don't think is right, God, I want to get it out of my belief system. I want to throw it away because it's garbage. And so I'm asking for the help of your spirit, Lord, as we go verse by verse through this powerful book that you would continue to change us. God, I thank you for the work you've done by your spirit tonight in our hearts. God, I know and I can sense the power of your spirit working in this room. I know there's deep changes. There's things being stirred in the hearts of those uh, that are here now. And so I thank you, God, that you're being faithful to your word that we've gathered here. And so you're here with us. And you're doing what it is only you can do. Uh, you are changing hearts. And you're drawing us ever closer to yourself, God. Our greatest need is to be near you. There's other things we need, God. But every single one of them falls far short of our need to be near you, to know you, to be in relationship with you. So, God, I ask that you would just, by your spirit, continually draw each of us to yourself. Lord, we, if we're honest, we are prone to distraction. Many of us came in here today and... Uh, We've been distracted. Many of us came in here today, and our highest affection has not been you. Our allegiance has been spread too thin and in too many directions. God, I ask that you would, you would break us, and you would bring us back, and you would humble us, and you would fix our eyes on you. We need that. We need your help. We love you. We treasure you. Please help us, God, by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.